0: David. Good morning, David. Good morning. Yeah, we're awake, and it's still morning for 30 seconds, I think. Um, Welcome here. I'm grateful for this time we've been given to get into God's Word, um, as we do each Sunday. What this passage will have us considering together for the next 30 minutes or so is God's incredible work of reconciliation, how it shaped Paul's ministry, and what that means for us. If you're visiting today, I want you to know you are welcome here. Uh, It's good to see you, and even if you don't know Christ, you're welcome here. We invite you to wrestle with the things we're talking about, ask questions, because lots of it probably won't make sense. We try to explain, and me especially this morning, we fall short in many ways. Um, And Yeah, wrestle with it, and, and we pray. Our hope is that you would taste and see the goodness of our God, and that you would come to know this Jesus, being reconciled to him through what he has done. Last fall, as you know, we were asking the question, what is the vision of community grace? Where is the Lord taking us, and what does his word say should be our direction as a local body of believers? Through our discussion together um, as a task force and prayerfully studying the word, we came to a place where we more or less knew what we were trying to say, but hadn't quite landed on how to articulate it. That was when a good friend of Tom's, who some of you know as well, he mentioned a church that he had attended uh, in Kentucky, which he thought had articulated these things quite well. Uh, the vision statement was building a community from all cultures where Christ is king. And they had five distinctives of how they saw that was going to come about. And it was truth that transformed lives, community that displays Christ, prayer that tries your kingdom come, worship that feeds the soul, mission that welcomes everybody in. We thought that was a great way to articulate what Christ has called us to. So yes, we are shamelessly borrowing, some might say stealing, uh, we haven't let them know yet, but Josh is actually attending that church now down there as he's at school, so maybe he'll let them know that we uh, really appreciate their work. But um, We think that the way they have articulated these things will be of help for each of us in grasping where Christ is leading us as a church. So we've been going through each of these five distinctives. This is the last of the five, uh mission that welcomes everybody in. The text that we're preaching from is one people often go to um, explaining what God's work is and our role in it. Um, but it's kind of awkward because it's in a place in the middle of Paul kind of defending his ministry. And so his point isn't necessarily telling the Corinthians you are ambassadors, but he's making the case for how and why they're ambassadors. Um, the very first week we discussed how Jesus is the truth that transforms lives. It's not mere just an ab- merely an abstract idea. It's, a, it's as we behold Christ that he's actually transforming us. And that's Elroy was actually earlier in 2 Corinthians, a few chapters back, expounding that. And so today, um, we have heard that the message that we need to share is, and, and that the message is Jesus, and who he is and what he has done, and not just to each other, but we also need to share that with the world around us, both this neighborhood we're in, and also coworkers, classmates, like they need to know. So today we're returning to 2 Corinthians, where Paul is going to point the Corinthians back to that message. Paul has had a very tested relationship with Corinth. They have had to work through some hard things. Paul was with them for a year and a half when the church was first established. And um, the brothers and sisters in Corinth hold a dear place in his heart, and you can really hear it uh, as you read this letter. It's just full of emotion. Like I don't, It doesn't stand out to me that greatly in some of Paul's other letters um, that are written to groups of people. Uh, This letter is incredibly emotional. I just said that. As you read, you can clearly hear the love Paul has for the Corinthian believers. An issue in Corinth, however, is that there were some who were bringing into question Paul's ministry. They said things like, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. They boasted in outward appearances, measuring themselves by one another and comparing themselves. They sought to commend themselves to the Corinthians, but Paul says in chapters 10, it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is kind of encouraging for me, uh, coming this morning and and preaching. Uh, It's, I have no commendation for myself, but the message that that trace is bringing, and so I I pray that he would use, use use us this morning. Um, if you want to turn with me, if you're not there already, Corinthians 5, verse 11, we're starting from. Here Paul is making his defense, not with the purpose of commending him and his fellow ministers, but rather to give the Corinthians cause to answer those who are boasting an outward appearance, appearance and not about what is in the heart. We're going to look at three things that drove Paul's mission, which will also help us walk through this text, and it's uh, ways in which they carried out their ministry. One, in the sight of God sight of the Lord, two, the um with sincere hearts, the love of Christ. And three, as commissioned by God. Ultimately Paul is going to turn the eyes of the Corinthians away from the messenger and point them to the message itself and the God who gave it. Let me pray before we uh get further into it. Jesus Our Lord, we come before you, we've gathered this morning as uh, your people to praise your name, Lord, to worship you and, uh, and to hear from your word, and we ask that you would teach us, Lord, I ask not just for my brothers and sisters in front of me who are hearing, and I ask not just for any here who don't know you and they need to hear your message of reconciliation. I asked also for myself, God, um, that it would be Your message that would um, shape my heart in in declaring this to my brothers and sisters, and that it would shape our hearts and minds and the way we go out here today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Verse eleven. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. The therefore, as we've heard many times, uh, should point us to what Paul said before this. So if you have your Bibles, verse 10, right before, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What does he mean by the fear of the Lord? Fear a natural response when faced with the idea of being exposed before the God of heaven and earth who will judge all people. And the word actually strikes of that, it, the original word is like flight, and like to put to flight, or that which causes flight. But was Paul in dread? Was Paul in dread? If we want to better understand Paul's understanding of the fear of the Lord, we might do well to consider Jesus' own words regarding it. In Matthew 10, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples two important truths in one passage. Matthew 10, verse 26. So have no fear of them, speaking of the men that their disciples are about to go preach to. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But then he also says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground, apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. (coughs) Trying to explain the fear of the Lord, Uh, Paul knew that his faithfulness to his ministry was displayed clearly in the sight of God. He mentioned in chapter 2 that their ministry is in the sight of God. He knew he would be accountable for how he lived and whether he faithfully acknowledged Christ before men. So this gave him a healthy fear of the Lord. But it also freed him from any concern he had in the sight of man. For the Lord would take care of him as it is written so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's strange. This God, this is God. We sometimes forget that. We draw up coming to church, and it's like, this is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he is almighty and powerful. And we were talking the other night, and yeah, he is a God to be feared, and yet we have found ourselves in a place where he is also our only hope. And so we don't shrink back and run in terror as some might, um, for we are sure of greater things of what Christ has done. And so we actually go to God. And it's in Him then that we have no need to be f- afraid of our fellow man. There's a sense in which the fear of the Lord motivated Paul, but also he had a confidence in the fact that the Lord knew Him fully. What we are is, is known to God. He knew that He was in Christ and that as a result, His trespass, trespasses were not counted against Him. Do you know that? What kind of things drip your heart with fear? Does the fear of the Lord fill you with great terror or dread? Or you go to him. Is he also your hope? Let's continue. Second, their ministry was carried out with sincere hearts. Verse 12 to 16. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. How often do you question the motivations of those you're interacting with? Or even you come to church and someone's up front talking, you're at work, how often do you wrestle with where people's hearts are actually at? I think in our culture we're often pretty skeptical, uh, sometimes very skeptical, especially of uh, people in places of authority or or that kind of thing where we question the motives. Sometimes probably rightfully so. (laughs) Some of us maybe don't, though. Do you assume everyone is genuine? Or like lots of you, has pain in the past made you quick to assume ulterior motives? The Corinthians were more concerned about outward appearance than, than what was in the heart. Based on Paul's statements earlier in the letter, it appears that some of his opponents may have been seeking selfish ambition rather than seeking to please the Lord. Paul makes it clear that it is the inward state of the heart, not outward appearance, that is the most importance. Is the inward state of the heart, not outward appearance, that is the most important. Regardless of how Paul and Timothy may appear outwardly, they state that their aim is to please God and be of benefit to the Corinthians. But I want you to see that the state of their hearts, they weren't just the good guys, just good people teaching. They have been drastically changed. <coughs> Rather than selfish, selfish ambition or the esteem of men, It is what Christ has done that motivates and guides Paul and his companions in their life and ministry. What have they concluded? One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. That is, Jesus Christ died in our place. Death was required of us because of our sin and wrongdoing. But now in Christ, his death is counted as our death. So it can be said of us that all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul doesn't just have a good heart. He's just a nice guy, good guy. It's what Christ has done that has changed him. And now he, from a sincere heart and love, is compelled. And and that word control. is like, he can't not. Knowing the love of Christ, Paul can't not share this share this message and carry on his ministry. So it's the inward state and motivation of the heart that the Corinthians need to be regarding. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What do they mean that they once regarded Christ according to the flesh? The flesh. I, I believe Paul, Paul here, what he's saying, uh, you may recall in his letter to Philippians, I don't know the reference here, but you remember when Paul is talking about boasting in his flesh and he accounts all of these credentials he had before Christ, Pharisee of Pharisee, like knew the law, all these things, and he counts it rubbish. Um, and so flesh there, He's he's referring to like human human standards and qualifications. And and that's that's what they're looking at here. During the time of Jesus' life and ministry, the Jews were under the rule of Rome. This is uh to answer the question, what do they mean by regarding Christ according to the flesh? So during the time of Jesus' life and ministry, the Jews were under the rule of Rome. They were awaiting the coming Christ, the Messiah. We talked about this lots in our Bible study in Matthew, and you've heard it from the public before. But um there was a number of different views at the time of who the Messiah would be and what he would be here to accomplish. Um, but most expected him to overthrow the Romans and restore Israel back to their place. They were expecting a leader who would come and lead them with politically and with great military power. The thought of the Messiah coming to suffer and die was nowhere on the radar. So as we read um, from Matthew this week, when Jesus is mocked and flogged and crucified, it was the complete opposite of their expectations. They wouldn't have seen a way that he could possibly be the promised one. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul was aggressively persecuting Christians. He was called Saul then. He did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And so he concluded that these followers of this Jesus were blaspheming, and so he persecuted them, putting them to prison, and he was even responsible for for some of their deaths. So when Paul is referencing this, he's thinking back. We once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but now we no longer do. And because uh, you know that Paul, when he was on his way to Damascus to do that very thing, persecuting. These followers of Christ, Jesus met him, opened his eyes, and reconciled <laughs> him to himself. Verse 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul is alluding to a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 43, and in uh chapter 6, um, he actually alludes to Isaiah 49. And there's this beautiful passage. It's long. I, I go sit in it. I had to read it a few times <laughs> to like get through. Um, and I still don't, didn't grasp it all. But um, in verse 18 to 19 of Isaiah 43, the God says to this prophet, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. What is that way in the wilderness? Rivers in the desert. You may have uh some guesses. Um, it's a way back into right relationship with God. Man is at odds with the God of heaven. We did not honor him as God or give thanks. But we turned and we worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Then in passage in Isaiah, uh God is addressing his nation of Israel, and he's alternating between the prophesying of of hope and restoration, but then also also um calling them out for their idolatry and their sins and how they're turning and their worship and serving these these gods that they fashion with out of wood like they make it themselves and then they bow down to it and like they turned and from the living God. Um, but he doesn't just speak to Israel. There's a beautiful passage in there where he's talking about how he's going to ho- send his Holy One, the Redeemer. And uh, and, and the words there are literally, it's, it's too small of a thing for you just to bring Jacob, Israel, back to me. But no, all the nations to the ends of the earth. And so there's this picture that God's doing a new thing after this long relationship with Israel of them turning from him and back and turning from him and back, he's now going to make a way to, to actually deal with the issue and also not just the Israelites, but all the nations, which I presume that many of us in this room are included in those all the nations. But prior to this work of Christ, this work of God, we're not in a good place. Because of our trespasses, our sins, our wrongdoings, we have been separated from God, for he is a just God and a good God. An old preacher, Charles Spurgeon, explained the need for God's reconciling work this way. There has been a long-standing quarrel between God and man. It commenced in that day when our first parents hearkened to the serpent's voice and believed the devil rather than their maker. Yet God is not willing for that quarrel to continue. According to the goodness of his nature, he delights in love. He is the God of peace, and he has, on his part, prepared everything that is needed for a perfect reconciliation. Me. His glorious wisdom has devised a plan whereby, without violating his justice as the judge of all the earth, and without tarnishing his perfect holiness, he can meet man upon the ground of mercy, and man can again become the friend of God. And all this is from God. Verse 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, Paul writes. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them and trusting the message of reconciliation to us. The focus there is on God doing, God doing that act, God initiated. And because of this, Paul writes that they are ambassadors for christ it is It is as though God directly through them is imploring them to be reconciled to God. Notice how Paul sandwiches their work of reconciliation that the their ministry that God's given them in between. If you look like poetry classes, this is kind of like the a b a pattern first, it's God's reconciling work. Um, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and, and then and then the B is gave us the ministry of reconciliation and then he calls them to be reconciled to God and then he sandwiches it again with for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took our place. Jesus knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. Lived his whole life perfectly righteous and by righteous that means like Perfectly in line with God's commands and expectations and decrees. We just read three of the Ten Commandments. Three? That was three. Three. I I can't walk out of here with my head high on my own. I don't think any of us can either. In and, and previous weeks, we looked at the other ones. And how did Jesus summarize all the commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And we all fall short. And it's not just like, no, God is a judge, a good judge, thankfully. You see in our world, there's atrocities. Things are not as they should be. God as judge, the judgment seat of Christ, is good news for those who who care and love justice. But where's that line? Stop. When do we want God to stop holding men accountable for their deeds? Cause like the things I do aren't that bad, so you should deal with Hitler. You should deal with murder and rape and strife and and those things. Closer to home, like racism, those things, it's like yeah, that is wrong and terrible. My issues? It's like, no, God is perfect, just, and He will by no means. And so I love how Charles Spurgeon said that. Without varnishing His holiness, He's devised a plan. Without violating His justice as the judge, He has made a way for man to be reconciled to God. That's beautiful. That's crazy. I want you to see that it's it's that, the very message of reconciliation is what motivates, is what's at the heart of Paul. The Trinityans are getting caught up with these men with lofty speech and eloquent wisdom, and they come in power. We're not in danger of that today. But, uh, and so Paul corrects them. Like, he does, give them a way to defend his ministry to them. But ultimately, like, let's turn from these earthly things and let's look at this God who reconciled us. And so that's that last. the last point is Paul's ministry. He's been commissioned by God. So in 2 in Corinthians 2, it says, Men commissioned by God with sincere hearts, in the sight of God, we preach in Christ. Okay, Jay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's beautiful. I hope you're tapped in, You're seeing that message, but how does this? Like that's Paul. Is this just? Are we now Paul today? And we often, we quote this passage. It's like, yeah, we're all ambassadors of Christ. And we we quote this passage. And and, uh, it's partly why I came to this text. But then it was a little uncomfortable because Paul's main point is that him and Timothy, they're ambassadors. And he's kind of correcting, he's correcting the uh, Corinthians for disregarding that for all the wrong reasons. But, Matthew 28, God ha- is s- Jesus sent his disciples into the world. And this practice continues. God reconciles men to himself and then makes them his ministers of reconciliation. And in Acts, Jesus did his work, co- conquered death, rose to life, reconciled men to himself. They declared many were added to their number and then persecution hit Partly at the hands of the man writing this letter, the church scattered. And you read, there's a few different verses in Acts where it's like, as they spread, just average believers, as they spread, many believed from their account. So we are ambassadors. But from here, I want you to see we're not we're not just gonna bring in this evangelism program. We're all going to give you all tracks, and we're going to run out and just bang on people's doors and and check, 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 lead them through a line, sign a card. But we could we could do actually lots of those things with sincere hearts and to be dead, But but the point is, notice how this message that Paul's delivering has shaped him and changed him. And and if you are in Christ, you've been transformed because of this message. And it's that love for Christ. And knowing knowing the fear of the Lord, that he is our God, he is our king. We worship him as king. So there is that we want to obey and we want to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. But we also want to share this message. And as we behold, uh, as we behold him, as Paul says a few chapters earlier, and he is transforming us, Changing who we are. M- me personally, this, the desire, this love of Christ controlling me, so I have to share. It's growing. It's growing as I uh, pay attention to it, as I look to it. There, there really is this sense that you can't, you can't not. It's meant to be shared. The love of Christ will compel you. So I pray for you guys, um, and and I know some of you pray for me. David was actually giving me some good advice with my coworkers the other day on the next step. It's like, hey, like, did you invite him to this? Or how could you reach just, like, talking through the gospel? But he's like, we can encourage, we can sharpen one another in this and, and point each other. And one of those things is that praying for three that we've been doing. I have been so encouraged and challenged. Uh, pray for three, if you don't know, it, it's it's uh, it's just a simple question. Hey, who's three people? Give us three names of people you know that don't know, don't know Jesus. They have not been reconciled to God. And then you be praying for them, but share it with us so we can be praying together. And we leaned into that last fall, and we had like 23 names. And I have to give the people in our group an updated list now because now it's close to 30. Because <laughs> uh, Sam keeps meeting random people at coffee shops. And... Uh, We live and walk among people who don't know, that are at odds with the God who's a judge. And he's made a beautiful way to reconcile them to himself. And if you haven't been reconciled to God, behold this Jesus. Behold what he's done. Trust him and turn to him. Turn from your sins and striving. Find rest in Christ and new life in Him. Let's pray.